Is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time one of the greatest games of all time? No. Welcome to the inaugural and perhaps only ever episode of the Greatest Games of All Time podcast. Uh, I am Aaron. I'm here with my co-host, Brandon. And and on this podcast, what we're trying to do is determine for you, the listener, whether a game deserves mispronunciation incoming. Fucking God. Whether a game deserves to have the epithet one of the greatest games of all time written on its Wikipedia page. And and, uh, the game that we've chosen for this first episode is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And that's a big one. And what we're going to do on this podcast is we've each played through the game and we're going to pick five. We each picked five topics as we were playing through just that we thought uh, were relevant to sort of understanding the game and its historical context and how it plays now. Um, and and that's just going to kind of be the format. We'll, we'll sort of ping pong back and forth, talk about each one for five or six minutes maybe, and then uh, we'll move on to the next one. And then at the end, we'll maybe have a wrap-up session where we, where we talk about, uh, you know, do we think it's one of the greatest games of all time? Uh, so having said that, Brandon, do you want to go first or I can jump in first? Um. Why don't you kick us off? Because I think you have a little bit of a lead on prep, and then I think I'll be able to get some inertia from that. Right on. Okay. So what I wanted to do first, and what I think is really important to do, is kind of place this in the greater continuity of Zelda's development, Ocarina of Time. And I think it's super interesting to look at just who worked on the game. And uh, if you look at the staff role for Link to the Past and compare it with Ocarina of Time, there's really almost no sort of change or sort of continuity between those two development staffs. Hmm. Uh, Miyamoto's obviously the uh, sort of helmed the project in both cases. But the director on Link to the Past and also Super Mario Brothers 3 and Super Mario World and every game you've ever loved basically, was Takashi Tezuka. And on Ocarina of Time, he's only listed as a supervisor. And when I play the game, I don't get the sense that he did that much supervising, to be honest. Um, And the reason I say that is because when I think about a classic Tezuka game like Link to the Past, the soul of his sort of games and his game design, I think, lives in that space where you're encountering an enemy and there's not a specific right way to defeat that enemy, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, in Link to the Past, Link is canonically left-handed, right? And he swings his sword in a way that's not a perfect half-moon shape in front of his body. It's sort of concentrated right. on the left. Yeah, yeah. As, as you'll remember, I'm sure. And so you might have a situation where an enemy is, like, approaching you from the right, on a diagonal, but you can only swing your sword on the left, and you you can only face in the four cardinal directions, and you sort of have to make that split-second decision of like, okay, do I 
sort of retreat and try to reposition so that I'm positioned right to hit the enemy, or do I try to turn quickly and hit the enemy? And that sort of like gray zone that you're constantly in, I think you see that in Super Mario World, Super Mario Brothers 3. Um, and I think that's really absent in Ocarina of Time, and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, but I think if I think about like a quintessential Ocarina of Time encounter, it's the Wolfos enemy, and and there is an objectively right way to defeat a Wolfos, I think, and that is the Wolfos will swing at you once, and if it misses, it swings again, and it misses again, and the force of the second swing like rotates its body all the way around so that its back is exposed to you, and then right. you just hit B once, and it dies. And that's sort of the best way to, to fight the Wolfos enemy. And I find that I think a lot of that Tezuka design ends up, it's just not really in Ocarina of Time. And again, that's not necessarily good or bad, but it makes for a much different enemy encounter in Ocarina of Time than it would be in Link to the Past, for example. That's really interesting. So uh, first of all, you're blowing my mind uh, with the <laughs> Link to the Past left-handed. Like it, As you're saying all of that, I can perfectly picture everything that you mentioned there. And I even yeah. have like the muscle memory of the interaction there. Um, of you know how to behave in those situations. I never, anyway, that's crazy. And uh, I'm kind of what I'm thinking about though is like, it's he has a lot of expertise or familiarity in the 2D realm and kind of operating or or creating those gray area moments that feel right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wonder if you know translating to 3D, um, you know, maybe some of his, like, I'm just wondering, speculating, like, if he was absent because he didn't have something to add there. You know, there wasn't, he, his expertise didn't translate. It doesn't translate into 3D well. Um, because one of the things that, and one, this is similar to one of the things I was thinking about is, or talking about is, like, um, the combat, the mechanics of combat in this game. And how, uh, you know, on one hand, it's, they're in a new realm. It's 3D. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much to talk about, like how much credit to give to that. That it, this was also the first time in 3D that you know Zelda had been done. So I don't know right. if, if that if that's a a metric when you're talking about greatest game of all time. Like, does that matter? Um, yeah, I think we have to separate. It's like it, I think Ocarina of Time can be extremely uh, impressive for what it managed to achieve for being the first yes. sort of like 3D action adventure game. But then separate that from the question of okay to play it in like a modern context does it count as a greatest game of all time? Right, totally. Um, and so then, back like going back to the combat, then you talk about like there are you know um, specific dynamics of interaction, like you're saying, like with the wolfos. Um, but largely, the combat mechanics are are pretty simple, right? It doesn't have the kind of nuance that you might expect from coming from something that linked to the past, like you're, you're calling out, um, where there, there are things, you know, things to do in terms of timing or, you know, uh, parrying and this kind of thing. Um, but there's still something lacking there that I felt where it just didn't, it didn't feel as full as, you know, I would want out of, out of the, everything that link is supposed to be as a warrior. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, What's conspicuous to me in those encounters is like two enemies never attack you at the same time. 
you know, (laughs) pretty much like the other ones just like sort of wait and post Dark Souls post. I mean, that's that's sort of a big one for me. But um, you might have played some other ones, other sort of 3D action adventure games where it's just it's just sort of commonplace now that multiple enemies are going to attack you. And that's sort of where a lot of the challenge starts to come in is how to manage multiple enemies simultaneously. Um, But I think they felt they might have felt like you know, first time in 3D, a lot of people are just going to be sort of like scared shitless by that maybe, or they feel like they won't have anything to to anchor onto or just feel kind of adrift. And so totally. um, and so maybe they made that decision to only have one attack you at once. It does feel very intentional. And, and for that reason where it's like, hey, we're putting you in a whole new realm. Uh, we want you to feel proficient at it, you know, and so there, you could have like multiple enemies around, but yeah, they're they're not attacking and I think that's that was actually a good design choice. Like that's the correct way to go, mm-hmm. um, but it does give you kind of a hollow feeling. Um, yeah, where there's just you're kind of like, okay, I attack you, I jump around, and then you know, next in line, like take a number. So uh, it's not it's not the kind of combat that, again, that well that that we've gotten used to, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't feel satisfying mm-hmm. now. I think and. I think it sort of hints at how, I mean, the first time you're playing that game, you're not really noticing that. I think if you're playing it as like a a 13-year-old in 1999, you're not really noticing that the Stolfos is just, the second Stolfos is just like hanging back, waiting for the first one to die so it can jump in. Because you're just sort of blown away by the the technology and, and the feeling of being in 3D for the first time. Uh, but again, to in a modern context, context i think it ends up feeling kind of hollow yeah yeah um okay i think we covered that do you want to jump in with your first topic uh so i mean that was kind of so my first topic was around mechanics um in terms of like input and just like the the uh, input engine um so combat being part of that i guess we we've covered just the simplicity there which i'm willing to like like I said, give credit for. Like I think there's intentional design there. I don't think it was bad design, um, but it was just it was simplistic. And I think part of that is this is the first time doing it, so really, how complex could it be? Um, but then also part of it is let's not overwhelm these people, right? I mean, the N64 has what like eight or six six face buttons, and then all of the yeah. you know it had the two triggers and the Z. So there was plenty to work with in terms of potential. Uh, like input modality. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I, on that regard, as far as combat, I think, I think they did pretty well. And in terms of movement, like, um, I, I don't actually know. So as you're saying this with, um, uh, Tezuka, um, like a lot of those games that you mentioned, they feel very tight. Like the controls feel very tight. Like you always yeah. feel very connected to the player. Um, was he yeah. on Mario 64? Was he involved there, or he, do you know? I think he was an assistant director okay. on that, like working directly under Miyamoto. But he was, yeah, I mean, he's he's he was, like, more than capable of directing his own game. Right. And I wonder if they just decided, like, you know, because I think something like 120 people was the final tally that worked on Ocarina of Time. And that's uh-huh. that was probably, you know, five or six times the size of the team 
on Link to the Past. So with the development teams growing, maybe that felt like they needed needed to spread that guy around. Right. And, and just sort of like have his knowledge dropped on a lot of different games versus just focusing on one or two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd be interested to, 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 I think that's a great point you're bringing. So I'd be interested to know more about like how that affected the shape of things. Um, but in terms of the, like even with the combat, what it was like, it, it felt very tight in terms of your ability to move around. Right. Like I know you can lock on and the pairing, um, you know, backflips and all that, like once you get what you're supposed to do, you can be pretty proficient in combat. Um, and again, it's, it is simple and it's one-on-one. Um, but I rarely felt myself just kind of flailing at somebody. And so I think that's a, a testament to like their, uh, to, to good design there on, on input. Um, I also like, Again, this is something that I don't know how much to give extra credit for, but because it was one of the first 3D experiences, but the lock-on system I thought was really um, well done. There was some weird, you know, kind of funkiness to it with, you know, some things you would hover, like Navi would turn green, and that was just like a hover item, not something you could lock <laughs> on, uh, versus others are yellow and you can lock on. And yeah. I, I appreciate what they were going for. Um, but it just wasn't always clear. Like, I don't know that I like that distinction. Um, but not to focus. That's more of interaction than input. But the input of like locking on to things um, and movement, mostly, I thought felt really good. Um, everything felt really responsive. You know, I think something that can happen in modern games is they get so hung up in their animation, uh, mm-hmm. like the the, the playthrough of the animation that. You, you start feeling loose or you start feeling disconnected from the character or frustrated that like I'm I'm trying to interact and I can't. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel that, you know, much or, or if at all that I can think of. Yeah, it's uh, almost like um, I want to say that because they did do a good job of uh, they make it clear what you're supposed to do when, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's the Wolfos and the Wolfos mm-hmm. turning its back to you and then I, I hit B. And the result of that is that I think once you grasp all of those signs that the game, I mean, the game basically shows you a sign and it's like, hey, dummy, remember to do this when I show right. you the sign. Um, and once you internalize all those, it's super fluid. And it, I think that I think that comes more with, you know, beating the game like five or six times, like I've probably done in my life. Um, and and so when I play it now, it almost plays like a just like an interactive movie or something like that because i know what to do on on every point and it's interesting to play it with my son who's four and i i know your son's a similar age and uh he loves i mean he's he's told me like ocarina of time is my favorite game Hmm. even though he just sits there and watches it but i just always know what to do you know i know what every sign from every enemy means i know what every you know, hookshot target means I'm supposed to do. And so it's super fluid, just like flowing through the game. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the best case outcome for Ocarina of Time, right? Once you internalize all those signs and you're just sort of like flying through the game, everything's smooth, you know what to do. Um, I think uh, I'll, I, I could, I wanted to talk about this later, but like in f- future Zelda games where I, have played them less and I know less and less of what to do. I just find that frustrating. Right. <laughs> like trying to figure out what this, 
what does this fucking sign mean that the game keeps showing me that I'm supposed to do and I don't get it and I feel dumb. But uh, with Ocarina of Time, uh, I think the best case scenario is you just you just kind of get it and you're just skating through. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that does come up with the familiarity of, of past experiences because when I, when I do think about the more modern games and they start getting, you know, modern games in general are trying to get away from uh, like HUD elements, you know, and, and especially... Uh, when I played Breath of the Wild, I played it with, you know, they call it what, advanced or pro mode, like with no Me HUD. Because uh, it's just, it's gorgeous, right? And I don't want stuff on the screen. Yeah. Um, and you don't want little floating reticles and all of that. Um, um, or, I, I lost where I was going with this, but basically it's just in Ocarina of Time, those items are there. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily ding them for that, right? I mean, you, again, you're in a new a new realm, and so how do I focus your attention to to these things that you haven't seen before? But I I wonder if that was too much handholding. You know, did they need to do that? Like, do we do we need to paint the things red, or do we need to um, yeah uh, do the targeting? I, I ultimately I like the targeting, but um, yeah, that's a that's a curious uh, a point there. Like, how necessary was it? Yeah, I think I mean I think we'd probably agree that it was super necessary at the time, right? It's yeah. like, because I'm sure they felt like, you know, we don't even know what we're doing making this game in 3D. You know, we're figuring it all out as we go along. And to this day, there are people whose brains just can't grok 3D. I've heard uh, about cases, you know, where people, like especially adults who don't play games and right. moving around in three dimensions, they just can't, they just can't get it. You know, and I'm sure that that was a significant fear for them. I think, but but then it's like, you know, it's like that question we were talking about earlier. How much do we applaud them for solving the technical challenge of the time, which is making a 3D action-adventure game? And can we separate that from the question of, okay, to play it in a modern context now, is it fun? Is it rewarding? Is it satisfying? And to me, it's it ends up not being a satisfying when I feel like the game is hitting me over the head with, you're supposed to do this now, you're supposed to do this now. The, yeah. To me, the most egregious example is like when they highlight the text, like even in text, yes. they highlight text that it like showed in red. It's like, hey, pay attention to these uh, specific words because this is a hint that we're giving you dummy. Right, you know? yeah. Like, no, <laughs> and, 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 no, that's a great point because I, you know, I think back to Link to the Past, um, and I remember, and I played it as a young kid, but I missed a lot of stuff because you have to read and you have to, you know, who do I talk to? You know, where do I yeah. go kind of thing? Um, but I, I actually don't remember anything to the past if they did that highlighting like that. Um, I, I don't think, think they, they did. No. Right. And so, because I, I feel like that would have, you know, stuck out to me. And so, yeah, if they're designing that for kids, that's a great, that's a great thing to add. But if you're designing it as a, again, like you're saying, like there, there's two paths here, right? Did they design it well for their audience and for the time? Absolutely. Um, evaluating it across time? No, mm. that doesn't that doesn't hold up. You know, like where you look at something um, like a 2D game, it gets the benefit or it can get the benefit of having like that stylization that it doesn't get dinged for graphics and interaction. You know, it's it, it becomes a, a style. Mm. Uh, highlighting the text that's not a style that's um i mean I, it is but it's just like it's fucking annoying it's like yeah i got it okay red you know red items and uh the blue items or whatever um, yeah 
yeah, so beating yeah beating the head beating the player over the head is not necessarily uh, the right way to go. But yeah, so I, yeah, I'm willing to recognize it, but yeah, I won't give concessions given the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the right approach too. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, like hookshot targets and uh, eye switches that you shoot with a bow and other such uh, tropes in Zelda. And I think when I was trying to sort of prepare for this, I was going back and looking at interviews and, you know, with the developers who worked on the game. And it was interesting to me to find that from sort of the even earliest stages of development, there was a whole team Miyamoto says, whose job it was basically just to figure out how some of the classical Zelda items like the bow and the hookshot would work in 3D right. space. And uh, it's, it is hard for me not to see now if I sort of zoom out to like a macro level that the game is, it, in a, if you're very uh, uncharitably sort of assessing it, it's hard for me not to see the game as just sort of like a linear chain of those instances of like hookshot yeah. target, red ice that you put the blue fire on, um, uh, bow or like eye switch that you shoot with the bow, and there are many other such examples. And it, and I I think it's the same thing as like, hey dummy, hit the wolfos now, you know? <laughs> like right. it's yeah, obviously here's your time to push a button. Yeah. 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 And. Again, that's probably a concession to the time period where it, I mean, just from the perspective of being a developer on that game, it's like, how do I make this work in 3D? Um, oh, a hookshot target at least is going to let us put the, put the hookshot in the game. Um, I think because that happened so early on in development, they probably felt like, okay, well, we sort of figured these out, these little micro interactions. We need to put them in the game now. And so they stayed in the game, but it doesn't make it any less, uh, I don't want to say like insulting, but um, unsatisfying now to see a hookshot target, like this stupid thing that someone just put on the wall. And it's like, oh, I guess I shoot my hookshot into this arbitrary yeah. thing that happens to be on the wall. Um, it doesn't make it any less unsatisfying to play it in a modern context. Again, I'm not saying it wasn't, necessity to put that in at the time but in a modern context it feels kind of hollow i think right we're now like yeah exactly nowadays you'd have something that's more uh with the design aesthetic of the dungeon or of the area you're in and you just know based on the material like oh i can hook shot into wood and so mm -hmm. here's a wooden door frame or you know whatever it is um you know i think you can see other um uh emergent kind of design choices right with the scarecrow <laughs> um, which it's like, again, first playthrough, I didn't, I didn't think anything of that. Oh, yeah. here's a thing that I can, you know, hook shot to. Um, but when you kind of zoom out and you look at the game overall, you can see how they probably worked themselves into a place where it's like, okay, we have these hook shot things. Okay. Now we have a design and we don't know how to get you from here to here. Oh, let's just make a wooden thing that you can conjure. <laughs> And and grapple to right, and it's yeah. it's it's exactly what you're saying about they kind of they have a linear path they want you to follow, and then when the, de the design of the world got in the way, uh, they just put a shortcut in, and it's like oh here's a mechanic where we can you create a piece of wood when we need to, 
and it's it kind of it's even more egregious than the hookshot panel on the wall because it's not even a part of the world. It's something that right. comes out of the ground and it's kind of even the design of scarecrow. It's like what you know maybe that has a meaning, but like what is this? Like what are you putting in here? Like it kind yeah. of yeah, uh, yeah. That's interesting. It, it at the I mean again I think at the time, like you said, you don't think anything of it. But in a modern context, it's so clear. You could just see like the gears in the developer's mind yeah. turning almost. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, well, we got to figure this out so we can have this thing pop up out of the ground. Um, one of many examples where they were solving a technical problem, and at the time, the it was masked by. I mean, the that process that the fact that the developer is specifically doing that, you don't really notice it because just sort of the technical wizardry of the game obscures it. But, you know, post Breath of the Wild to go back and, and play something like that, it's like, oh, come on, dude. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I will come back to that with Breath of the Wild. But, yeah, post Breath of the Wild, pretty much everything is ruined, I think. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think, I think, what you have though, right there with like the hookshot and the, the the eye, bow and arrow pieces, like perfectly summarizes that uh, struggle of translation. You know, where it's like they did it, um, but it might not have been the best uh, that it could have been. Or yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you know maybe they felt like again this is going to be such a challenge to do something in 3D. I mean, they'd already made Super Mario 64, right? But it was yep. it's different to make uh, a Zelda-style game than it is a Mario-style game. So they're essentially starting from scratch. And uh, it, I, it's natural, I think, to look at what you did before and think, okay, well, let's translate what we did before into 3D space and have that be the starting point. Um, but they weren't, because of those extreme technological challenges that they were facing they weren't maybe given the opportunity to start from a blank slate um yeah like i think breath of the wild i think breath of the wild they started with a blank slate it's like how could we remake this completely from scratch um and i don't think that was the case with ocarina of time yeah that uh i think that's a great way to put it yeah because they you almost don't have the confidence or even the leeway, right? It's like, hey, we have we have something that works. We have something that's iconic. You know, we need to bring it all into this other world. And I think that's a, a probably pretty common thing for, I'm going to make a, a generalization that any 2D game to 3D game probably hits on its first step into that realm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, something kind of, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about that's, we're sort of close to it peripherally, so... Uh, I'll just uh, hijack here is yeah. a, a section on like the puzzles and design, right? So I think you kind of did hit on like the the whole idea of the hook shots and the what are they called? Those eye panels, um, eye you know, switch, the, thing, eye switch, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it was. I often did feel you know like so. I think you had a great point with the linearity of. Just the just how you traverse through things, how you traverse through dungeons or through the world, um, it's kind of like from one panel or switch to the next. You know, go here, go here, um, and 
oftentimes like the puzzles just felt contrived like whether it was the the switches like that's like they had a mechanic that they wanted to use and that they knew okay here's how you use the bow and so we're going to place these around um there were others like the it was very early i can't remember i think it might have been it was in the deku tree with the there's like three deku shrubs Mm -hmm. uh, or deku i could be butchering that um and you have to unearth them in the right order yeah and then they give you some hint yeah like uh, and they open the door and they give you a hint and it's like what was the point of this puzzle like what why did you feel the need to introduce that because i don't remember that being a thing before but what like what was the what was the challenge here what was the benefit um was it because they wanted to give a hint and they didn't know how so they thought hey here's a hint on how to fight queen goma yeah how do we give this to the player oh we'll make them earn it through a puzzle yeah uh okay okay. so that you know stuff like that just felt disjointed yeah Um, i agree yeah versus like other things where from a different tech you find yourself in the spirit temple you know at the end and the spirit temple has all of the previous dungeons puzzles in it right so you find (laughs) yourself going in and reusing them. And I actually thought that was a nice like summary of, you know, the things you've learned. Mm-hmm. Um, while it's not original, it's still, it's like they're, they're aware of the cohesion, right? It's like, mm-hmm. Hey, here's everything you've interacted with and we're going to put it all together. And so I felt like that was a better example of like intentional or aware design mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, I think a lot, you know, that a lot of these analogies are like beating the player over the head of, oh, here, or, or, or just serving them something and finding a contrived way to do it. Um, so there was a good mix of both, I felt. Um, yeah, I, th- I think in those, I think in those cases, you unfortunately see too clearly the hand of the developer sort of entering the game and arranging yeah. things before your very eyes. Um, that again is obscured if you're playing it in 1999, but um, it, I mean, contrived is the right word. That's basically the, the description of contrived is seeing that hand come in and, uh, yeah. and set things up perfectly for you. If I recall that puzzle that you're talking about, it's like, it's, it's like a multi-stage deal because you have to fight the one Deku first who like gives you the hint. He's like, he's like, yeah. you have to defeat my brothers. Yes. <laughs> in this specific order. And then you go and apply that hint to the other puzzle to give you another hint. Um, yeah. I mean, so you could really see them grappling with like, oh man, people are going to be so um, they're confused by, by this dungeon in 3D. How can we help them through it? And right. so we need to give them hints. And so they present those hints in the form of puzzles, I guess. But another way that, you know, when you play the game now, you can, it feels dated just because they were solving an immense technical challenge at the time that mm-hmm. doesn't exist today. You know, so those, those sorts of uh, contrived puzzles aren't really needed in a game that is coming out today. Right. Yeah. I guess you, because you have all those learnings of, of interactions from previous, uh, like, uh, historical gaming, right? Or not historical, but um, practiced. Uh, over other titles mm-hmm. um, you know I'm wondering too like I don't know why I just remembered this one but the you're in Dodongo in the cavern mm-hmm. and you have to drop the bombs into the <laughs> skeleton's eyes yeah and that's that's actually something where I feel like 
that's something that has carried forward into games, you know, now where you have to, you know, there's a skull and you need to do something with, you know, the holes or something, right? Whether it's uh -huh. filling them. And I, it, so it was obvious to me, I think, because I had played the game before, but I found myself wondering, was this an obvious puzzle or was, did it say that somewhere? And I just didn't read the sign or talk to the right, you know, Goron um, that I missed that uh -huh. or, uh, because if it was if it was something you had to discover, I think that's uh -huh. a that's a great example of like a novel puzzle that they introduced. Um, but now that I'm thinking about how much they had to lead the players or thought they had to lead the players, I'm wondering like that was probably on a sign somewhere. Like that's how I learned to do it the first time. I don't know if you remember that. I um, think there's some environmental text given, like okay. something about how you have to light up the eyes or something like that, and it's on you to figure out that you do that by dropping the bombs in, but that, so I, I totally wanted to talk about that. Oh, um, funny. Okay. Because those types of like the way the game gates progress with those, uh, if you'd even call them a puzzle, I'm not sure, but it's like, do the one specific thing to mm -hmm. get, to get the game moving forward. And I, I was watching this video on YouTube of this dude who played it. And I, I want to say that he did not play it when the, it came out, um, uh -huh. and and so he just didn't have all of the the, uh, the memories of the puzzles built up in his brain, and he he was furious that I think totally justifiably so. He's like, "How could you do this?" There's the scene where you have to get Darunia to calm down the Goron chief dude. <laughs> and uh, he's like, he needs to hear some kind of music. And you're supposed to remember that you, or somehow figure out to go all the way back to Kokiri Forest and talk to Saria and learn Saria's song. And that's like the type of music he wants to hear to get him in a good mood. And then he'll uh, let yeah. you into Dongo's cavern. And it's like, I just had the scene with her where it was like the tearful goodbye <laughs> on the bridge. And the the absolute implication of that scene is I'm never going to see this person again. And it's very effective, I think, as a yeah. cutscene. Even now, the way that Link doesn't say anything and he just sort of slowly backs away and then all of a sudden turns around and runs. Because he's just sort of like a child. He doesn't understand emotionally how to handle this type of, like, goodbye, you know? Yeah. Very powerful scene. Um, particularly so given that it's done with like, you know, 20 polygons probably yeah, for like, the right. entire bot. It, it works really well. And then it's like, go right back and talk to Saria so that you can learn the song. It's like, come on, dude. And the other thing that he mentioned is catching the fish to put in front of Jabu Jabu to get Jabu Jabu to open his mouth and suck yeah. you in. It, it, that is a perfect example of, um, if it works where the developer is like giving you a hint and then you have the eureka moment and you go, Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. You feel smart. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't work then, and you know, later you find out the solution or you have to look it up or something. You're like, are you kidding me? It's just you frustrating. Know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it just becomes a point of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it puts a lot of pressure on the developer to get that balance. Exactly. Oh, right. Absolutely. Of, of hint. Yeah. And I think that's why it's challenging to make that work well as like a core design mechanic that they keep going back to over and over that style of puzzle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I think that it's important too to like 
we're like drilling on this game, right? And I, that's the point of why we're talking today. But it's also like, you know, I, I actually don't, I'm not sitting here like hating these people and these designers, like you're the worst ever. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, they're operating under tons of constraints in a whole new environment. Um, but it's just, I, I just want to like reiterate it. it yeah, it's an attempt to be objective, right? But it does end up having an emotional impact. And so I think that's, it's, it's okay to rail on them, but um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I, I want to, I, like, I'll just state, like, I love the game. Totally. I love to play the game. I had a blast going back and playing it, but I want to try to separate my own. I mean, there's, there's the nostalgia aspect, um, for sure. And I want to try to separate that from, like, just how does it feel to play now, you yeah. know? Yeah, and I, I think exactly, because that nostalgia tends with any game to paint, you know, where you get these accolades like we have on the Wikipedia page, like greatest game of all time. And it's like, well, let's, let's be respectful, but let's not be hyperbolic. Um, and, and the nostalgia definitely paints, you know, in hyperbole. So, um, yeah, yeah. anyway, I, uh, that was, a, that was an aside there, but, um, uh, I like something. So what you were talking about though, before I derailed, <laughs> sorry, was, uh, that moment on the bridge, with Saria, um, this I'm kind of jumping ahead. I think to what I think one of your points was just on the the writing in general and kind of mm -hmm. the impact that that could have. Um, oh shit! I just I just I just went flat. Oh, that's uh, okay. Because I, I can uh, I have something to say about that, and uh, feel free to jump in. But like, uh, I think that. I mean, the writing, is, the writing is really, really good. And uh, I think that happens from both the care and attention that Nintendo put into the project. Um, I, they had, I think if you just look at the credits they gave, they, and this was even the case on Link to the Past, they had someone who translated the game, and then they had someone who can read Japanese but is a native English speaker, then write the game based on that mm -hmm. initial translation, and so there's there was just care put into the the process of doing that, and it's fascinating to compare that with something like a Final Fantasy VII, which, as far as I understand, and um, if I'm wrong, someone listening to this, please uh, let us know. But they basically just dumped the entire text of the game into like an Excel file and gave it to the translator under an extreme Which, deadline yeah. and had him translate even it. Even today is a common way of that translation happens. It's just uh, out of context, you know, uh, right. translation files. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I think Nintendo has to be applauded for, for doing that. And just, but also just the writing, there's, there's many little touches in the game in the way it's written um, that do what I think really good fantasy writing does very well which is it gives you a little tiny hint of something that mm -hmm. is much larger in the world and is because of you know space constraints it's outside of the purview of the game but it just tells you that it's there like i think about uh the uh after you defeat the phantom ganon boss mm -hmm. and uh ganon's voice comes over and he's like what a useless creation this creature was i will banish it to the gap between dimensions and it's like whoa that yeah. sounds super fucked up to <laughs> like right. put someone in the gap between dimensions like what is that what would that 
be like and also bro like isn't it your fault that you created the the phantom so like you know you were the one who imbued it with all of its faculties and abilities so isn't it your fault that it that it failed but it's just lit you know so that's the kind of reaction you have to to writing like that um and i I think it's really effective uh and and it's what it's one thing that makes people continue to love the game today totally and i so I, I had also done just some like you know side reading and, and more learning and watching videos of people kind of dissecting now you know that you have this um, um, historical look back at the the timeline of Zelda's and it's amazing how much like how how many avenues Ocarina of Time birthed because mm-hmm. of the depth and nuance of writing right and so um, I don't necessarily think that was an intentional. Thing that they did in terms of like, hey, let's let's write stuff in that's going to last for twenty years. I think it was more about in taking care to write things that mattered and that were anchored to the world. It lends itself to being you know an anchor for twenty years, right? So mm-hmm. it was a more of a, a side effect um, and a good one. Um, but stuff like that, right? You're saying like, okay, so we have this now opportunity of the dimensional part. There's the time travel part, um, which there, you know, anytime you, I, I don't really ding anyone for coming up with um, uh, a paradox in time travel that is kind of you have to wrestle with, as long as it's not too heavy handed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole idea of young Link and adult Link, and then closing the closing the loop where he goes back to his time, but there's still the adult Link. Um, and I, I've read theories or that that's how Wind Waker was born. You know, like mm-hmm. in this other realm, this offshoot. Um, and so I just, I, I was marveling at that, you know, those, both the subtle moments, uh, like you're saying, and the, but even just kind of the larger ones that allow the world to, to be developed. I, uh, yeah, even, even the, just the lore of like how, how the realm was created, you know, like there are really cool moments of storytelling that weren't really directly related to anything I needed to do or to know. Um, it was just world building. And I thought they did that really well. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think you can see that in, like, when they put a new trailer up for whatever new Zelda game is coming out, and you see people in the comments, like, freaking out over uh, little details, like, hey, they showed uh, this. I wonder if this means that, uh, you know, this, I wonder if that means this for Zelda's backstory. I wonder if they're hinting at you know, right. something about It's like, no, dude, they're just like making it up <laughs> as they go along, you know, and and I, I want to be clear that I think Zelda doesn't have a story in the way that to compare it with a contemporary game like Final Fantasy seven has a story. I mean, Final Fantasy seven has uh, it has something to say about the world that we live in and right. uh, it has a political point to make and uh that's why the game was made, or that's sort of the intent behind the game, I think. Whereas with Ocarina of Time, the the story, quote-unquote, is just... I think it's just really giving context to your actions in the game. It's really just giving context to going up to an enemy and hitting B and to hit them. But because of the layers upon layers of lore that they've built up slowly over the years, that action ends up having a lot more meaning than you know if it was just if you were a block and you went up to another block and and hit b you know they they've done a really good job of 
ascribing meaning to to the basic core gameplay of Zelda by how well they've done the storytelling. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, and I, I think yeah, it's the that comparison is a good one of Final Fantasy VII, where you're you know you have a statement and maybe a modern one or not, but whereas Ocarina of Time and and probably most or many of the other Zeldas are more about the myth of mm-hmm. a hero and good versus evil and kind of more abstract and also like, you know, uh, very old uh, tropes or, or, or familiar, you know, archetypes of the hero and um, that kind of thing. So uh, it does, they do very well to use those familiar patterns and then sprinkle them with really nice little bits of, of uh, flavor. Mm-hmm. And, and we should applaud Nintendo, I think, for how effortlessly they were doing that. And I mean, it, it's sort of a just a tentative Miyamoto games, I think, where yeah. um, it for some reason in or pushing into Donkey Kong, like the idea of saving the, the princess as the hero was somehow revolutionary at the time. It seems incredible now to think that, but he clearly seized upon very early the importance of having some lore or story to give context to your actions. And, uh, and he's, he's just done it effortlessly ever since. And I think, you know, around Ocarina of Time or uh, maybe Wind Waker or something, that's the time that he started to take a step back and maybe his lore type details aren't as evident in modern Zelda games, but uh you know, he's he's passed on the torch and they continue to do that as well, I think, as uh as they did with Zelda and then Ocarina of Time in the early stages of the series. Yeah, I think that's something that Ocarina of Time definitely does get um very heavily in its favor is just the the anchoring of lore and just the the yeah. The prolific like not prolific, but just the it was overabundant in terms of what it offered to, to build off of, right. And to branch off of. And I think that, um, like I said, I think that is something that evolved organically. I don't think that was something that was with intent, but I think the dedication to detail and the care is what made that happen. So it, it was, it was intentional, but not in the way that it emerged. And I think, yeah, I would agree. Nintendo, like, that's where that's where you start getting the hyperbole with these games is because mm-hmm. they have this much larger like you could pass the mechanics and these other things and the the impact that it has is much larger because of those things and so um, yeah I would agree it's uh it's worth it's worth honoring yeah yeah it's funny it's I mean clearly that it wasn't the focus but um, it's it's like well we got to have a reason why you know. Ganon is this way or something so we'll just put this in and because they Miyamoto just happens to be like a a genius uh <laughs> it it turned out that what the little detail he put in there to explain Ganon turned out to fascinate people yeah um there was also so on that kind of note as we're giving accolades here for you know their their care there were other messages and little tidbits that I found um, puzzling or, or like I didn't go and research, but um, one was the betrothal to the Zora. Uh, yeah. 
And I remember that. And that's even, I think that's even, that persists in, in, in games, you know, going forward. Um, but I found myself kind of wrestling with that. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't go research why that happened, but like, was that to, was that like a, was that an intentional, like, Hey, you're in a world and there's different cultures. And so your actions have, you know, they had, they have meaning and they have uh, consequence. And so now you're betrothed to someone because you don't understand their culture. Um, was that an intentional and, and carefully placed, um, you know, uh, um, what's the word I'm trying to say is, is you know, young Link uh -huh. is naive. Uh -huh. he's, he's a child. And so now he's, now he's betrothed. He doesn't know how he got there. And then that has impacts on his adult life. Like, was that intentional? Were they trying to convey that or were they trying to like give that experience? Um, or was it just something wacky, you know, like the scarecrow where it's like, Oh, this would be kind of silly. Um, I don't know. I, I, I there's just things like that in the world where it, it yeah, it could go I, either way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'm inclined to say that it was almost an afterthought or, um, it was, you know, the script director was writing that part and going, oh, this would be funny, you know, something like that. But it, it just yeah. turned out to be, um, just because of, I, I mean, I really consider the team at Nintendo, um, that were making the, the first party games, especially around that time to have been just like lightning in a bottle, um, in, in terms of who was working on the project and, if you go back and look at a lot of the people who were working on those games, it's like they started at the game at the company as programmers or were in some technical role or came from some totally different discipline. And they ended up like working on the script or, or the scenario or something. And they, they were just smart people who happened to realize exactly how to execute that, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, that you're talking about the, the betrothal thing and it ends up not being a big deal and, and just kind of a joke, but I mean, not to get like too heady with this, but it doesn't have to resolve into anything. You know, it's like it clearly to the Zora person, the princess Zora, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it, it does not have to, I mean, there's plenty of things in real life that don't resolve. You know, and, absolutely. Yep. And it's fine for it to exist that way, I think, and uh, it completely works uh, in in the context of the game. So, just another example of like little detail that we'll just put in here because we feel like it, but it it turns out to have been super cool. No, I think that's that's a great point, and I think that's exactly right. Is and and, and it's, it's actually better that it didn't turn into anything, right? That it, it wasn't something you had to deal with or something to wrap, because that's how you get into this thing that modern games get into is where, oh, we've put this in and now we have to give you a resolution on every single thing. And by the end of the game, you're just like, oh, fucking enough. Like, I don't care about all this other <laughs> stuff, right? And yeah, and it yeah, the betrothal thing, it, it wasn't a cliffhanger. I didn't leave the game feeling like, oh, but what happened to, um, I'm blanking on her name, but um, yeah. Like, Rudo, I just remembered. Yes, uh, like whatever happened there like wh why you know and, and also the, i guess the time travel part kind of takes care of it it's like oh you go back to being a kid and it never happened um but there is the split of adult link is still in that world and so what's going on there uh, but yeah. i think yeah leaving it open end is, is totally fine and at those kind of that arena 
of where that lore does uh, surface that way, it does very well to um, go without explanation. You're, you're okay with it being open-ended because, and that, and that gives life to the world, right? Where it's just like, yeah, that was a, that was something that happened or, oh, I, who, you know, you can make a fan fiction or whatever and, and imagine what happened there. You don't need that finality. So as uh, many people I'm sure have made fan fictions around Link and Princess Ruto getting married, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rule 34 dictates. Yeah. Right. Dude, I thought the, uh, I really liked the, Link and uh, I can't remember her name from Breath of the Wild, but the Zora lady in that game. I really like the way that their relationship was handled. And it's another thing that just went nowhere, you know? Yeah. But you're just meant to understand, like, wow, the, the Zora lady loves Link. And uh, it, it doesn't seem like Link is interested in right. reciprocating. And it's just sad, you know? And that's yeah. just well, the way it is. And that's they actually, the I remember they do, it, it is the way it is. Like, and that was, I thought that was great too. It was just like, um, that's life, right? I mean, there's time, like, you're not always, the, the feelings are not always mutual. And so that's a very real uh, emotional experience. Um, but they did handle it in that she becomes like a, the sage or whatever, I can't remember what they're called. Um, right. Where she, it's like, there's no chance. She's kind of a God in a way where it's like, mm -hmm. she's going to help. Uh, she'll have these feelings, but um, there's not really a chance for anything to come of that. Um, yeah. So they handle it well, I think, while still injecting those moments of emotion. Um, yeah, it's just a random tangent. Uh, speaking of moments of emotion and like the subtleties, um, going to the spirit temple, and you uh, you learn about the you know Gerudo, how they're being um, Gerudo, right? Yeah. Um, imprisoned and whatnot uh, by the two witches. Uh, blanking on their names. It's fine. But then you learn that those are Ganon's uh, like surrogate parents um, and kind of, again, an understanding of what he grew up under. And mm -hmm. it kind of gives like these questions of like, is he evil because these people raised him? You know, like, was he just destined for this? And just they're like they're nasty these witches are nasty and you're like i don't know i just found myself like thinking about like ganon the child that like, growing up in this barren wasteland and uh yeah, yeah it's just just the just again these little things that have no immediate consequence but when you kind of expand on them it it, it just builds into a, a richer world and it develops the characters too like yeah ganon is evil link is good um but there's Absolutely. still some, yeah, there's still some expansion they can have there. So yeah, dude, and I mean, I think both of us played the game at a super formative period in our life, yeah. and uh, I I mean, it's like listening to an album that you mm -hmm. loved uh, as a teenager, and if you heard it for the first time now, you'd be like, this doesn't have any uh, <laughs> relation to me or what's right. going on in my life whatsoever. But you love it because you heard it at that time, and so I think you know it. If I haven't actually been that person in the YouTube comments being like, oh, shit, did you see this detail, bro? Like, what is this be for Zelda's backstory? Like, I've basically been that person, uh, yeah. you know, at certain times in my life. And and it's because uh, the these games were so, so good at, at uh, 
at dropping those little details that make you just kind of dream on them. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so we talked about the the puzzles pretty extensively. Oh, I wanted to say, I wanted to go back to puzzles before mm-hmm. I think we get into like final topics that we wanted to drop here. But I I was trying to think about like what what a design what constitutes a Zelda puzzle. How would I define one? Mm-hmm. And I think it's one where you know vaguely what the solution is supposed to look like, and then you're presented with some environmental objects that you're supposed to move in some way to get to that solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't really know what to do, and then the game will give you some hint. We, we were talking about the hints before, like, but it could be some environmental text, something visual in the environment, something, some text a, a character will uh, give a hint to you with. Um, and it, it, it's very different than a puzzle that we would think of traditionally, like outside of the context of Zelda. And I think about like a Rubik's cube, uh-huh. you know, that's probably like the quintessential puzzle. And uh, a Rubik's Cube, you know exactly what the solution is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how to get there. There's infinite, basically, uh, choices you have for getting to the solution. And you're just sort of trying stuff, right? It's like you, you might turn it this way and turn it that way and then turn it this way again. And you go, oh, that got me a little bit closer to the solution. I'll keep you know, plunging in that direction. Right. Or maybe you try stuff and, oh, that didn't work, so I need to step back and, and try something different. And the end result is just kind of over time, you're shaping your strategy. You know, you're sort of honing it, refining it, and then eventually you so- solve it. Although I'm not smart enough to have solved a, a Rubik's Cube. I just <laughs> thought it was a good example. But uh, just just to highlight the distinction between that and, and a Zelda puzzle, and AGL Numa, who um, designed the dungeon, the Dungeons on Ocarina, and he's like the head of the series now, has said uh, apparently that the the purpose of a Zelda game is to make you feel smart. Um, but I think particularly with the the Ocarina of Time puzzles and also Breath of the Wild, the the shrines, which are my least favorite part of the game by far. Um, it I don't I don't I guess solve them in the way that I would solve a puzzle outside of the context of the world. I feel like there's some intellectual application going on where I, I'm trying to think, but it's more in the sense of like, I'm just trying to think, what, are the, what does the developer want me to do here? You know, it's like I, I'm removing myself from the game world. Um, and it's very different than a Rubik's Cube where you can't really write a strategy guide for it. And um, purpose of it isn't to get you to feel smart it's to actually have you be smart <laughs> if that yeah, makes sense right. yeah no, um, you, can, you can look at the whatever i think you can solve a rubik's even 12 moves or something once you know the optimal solution mm-hmm. um but that's not yeah like you're saying that's sure you can solve it but did you actually you know uh show any intelligence in doing that right like um you, you didn't you're not solving anything you're just following a path right um i think that's kind of what ocarina time falls guilty of a lot is just like i'm not solving anything i'm i'm following from a to b and then that's supposed to make me feel smart and it it doesn't it more often than not it doesn't um 
Yeah, and it it can if yeah. it just happens to strike you right. Right, it's like the hint, the way it's written is perfect for you and your headspace at that time and what you happen to notice looking around. But I think, like I was saying before, it puts so much pressure on the developer to just nail that, and I think it's yeah. basically impossible to nail that every time. Uh, and and so, at least for me, what what really hammered this home for me is after I played through Ocarina. I tried to play Majora's Mask and I tried to play Wind Waker and I just was super unengaged. Um, and a lot of it stemmed from the puzzles. Like I just don't enjoy, I guess at this stage in my life or, you know, based on the type of games that I enjoy now, I don't enjoy that feeling of like just banging my head against the wall and, and trying yeah. things at random. Cause I'm like, okay, I don't get the hint. I don't see in the environment what I'm supposed to do. Um, I don't know why this doesn't work, so I'm just sort of trying stuff until I happen to stumble into the right set of steps that uh, solves the puzzle. Yeah, I think, and I, I had that uh, moment with this game very early on when you go to Kakariko Village and you have to, it's to get up to Death Mountain and you have to show the note to the guard. Um, but I'd forgotten that I had the note, and so he's like, you know, hey, piss off. And I'm, <laughs> so then I'm standing there and I'm like, okay, I'm in Kakariko Village, but like, what? what now right and i think that's actually a good example of like they didn't lead me to what to do there you know mm -hmm. okay here, here's where i need to go uh there's a blocking thing and in hindsight i'm like duh you have the note um but that's actually like i don't know if i'd call that a puzzle but that's something it's like there, there are pieces there there's a sequence of events that has to happen and i i'm moving along through them and i have to remember with context like what i have in the world and i think that's actually a better uh type of puzzle or, or I would call it more of a problem than a puzzle, but that I need to solve in this game. Right. And that's those kind of issues are where they are problems or what the game does well. Um, even like I was trying to think about the, you know, the unlit torch, you know, you walk in a room and there's three torches and one is unlit. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's even, I would put that in the category of uh, like making me feel smart versus just, uh, you know, some contrived thing because uh -huh. it's like, and now if I take it a step further and say, well, why was that torch unlit or why did the torches open the door? Like, sure, you could kind of bang on that. But the, the, I remember that feeling early on of being like, oh, this torch is out. Oh, I'm going to light it. And then you, you light it and it works. And it's like, ah, like that feels good, right? Uh -huh. Versus um, kind of some of the later dungeons where, like we already discussed, it's just one, you know, one panel to the next or shooting one eye target after another. And I'm not solving anything. I'm, I don't feel smart. I'm just, I know that I'm supposed to, I'm a monkey and I know I'm supposed to push this button to get the biscuit. And so I do, mm -hmm. and that doesn't feel good. That feels, you know, it's tedious, right? Um, Dude, I have an interesting uh, anecdote about the, the torch puzzle you were talking about. Yeah. I, I watched my sister who doesn't play video games um, do the, Deku tree or, mm -hmm. or try. And, uh, she, you know, she has no experience with games. So the kind of thing I was talking about before just moving around in 3d was a challenge, mm -hmm. but she got into that room. It's like, there's two torches. One is lit. <laughs> one is unlit. There's a wooden stick on the ground and, right. and the door is closed. Like the door is locked and she couldn't figure out what to do. And my sister is, a smart person you know she has a <laughs> right um 
she works she has a job you know she um <laughs> she's still she alive was, right yeah she she made it she remembers to put food in her yeah. mouth when she's hungry yeah right. like normal human stuff but for her she you know she doesn't have the baked in game logic of yes. years of stepping on switches and lighting torches and and stuff like that and so i think it's really interesting um i I don't think Zelda is for everyone as much as Nintendo might have wanted it to be at the time. You know, I think Mario is basically for everyone and Zelda is not. And I think I almost see Breath of the Wild as like a concession to that because the controls are really complicated, at least to me. They use every single button on the on the controller. And it's I, I feel like nintendo sort of almost had like an internal strategy session um where they're like okay from a sort of business plan perspective mario is going to continue to be the franchise that draws in casuals and people who don't play games that much um and we're just sort of going to abandon the idea of zelda being for those those people and uh, i think it's very much worked but I, i think it's a concession to the fact that to enjoy a modern Zelda game and for Nintendo to even make a game, a Zelda game that's good, you sort of have to leave that, the casuals behind and uh, maybe take advantage of all that, the years of built up knowledge about how puzzles and action and, and a Zelda style of game are supposed to work. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's, on one hand, I say it's an unfortunate concession because <clears throat> I would want to, you know, I would love, I would love Zelda, and I think this is probably something that a lot of Zelda fans are guilty of. Is I would love Zelda to be even bigger in our world, in our real world, than it is, right? In terms of cultural impact and, and relevance, um, like I love sharing the game and the lore and, and the experience with people, um, but it almost can't get to that point for the reasons you stated, because so much of the interaction with the game world is reliant on being a video game. You know, it's, it's, it's about that tribal knowledge of gaming that I built up that makes it so satisfying. And so I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with that example with your sister. It's like, as a gamer, the torch puzzle made me feel smart Mm -hmm. as a, as a person, as a intelligent person, that's not going to be the case. That's going to be contrived and frustrating. Like, uh, and I, there, are, there are videos like this. You know, I can't remember. There's a guy that does plays video games, has his wife play, and he just records it. And he doesn't help her. Um, I even experienced this. A friend is just now playing Breath of the Wild for the first time and got stuck on. You're supposed to cook some hot peppers to go into a cold area. And again, it's there, there's a mechanic they're trying to teach you and drive you into the next part. But she's just feeling out of touch. She's like, I haven't played games in so long. I just feel out of touch. And so there is that disconnect where it's like, well, is that a good puzzle? You know, the question breaks into, is it a good puzzle objectively? And then the other question is, is it a good puzzle in the Zelda world? Um, And those are very different, very different questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I sort of want Nintendo to just completely abandon the um, idea that Zelda is for... I, I, I want everyone to enjoy it in whatever way they can, but I almost think that they uh, make a better game when they completely leave behind the idea that Zelda is going to be for someone who doesn't play 
games that much anymore. And I, I totally don't mean that to gatekeep or say, you know, leave the games for the gamers. No, no, kind of I, like trash I, yeah. opinion like that. But I feel like um, they're what each franchise does best um, in the case of Zelda and comparing it to Mario, what, what Zelda does best, it shines when um, it leaves behind the idea of trying to introduce mechanics in a really simple way for, because the the vast majority of people playing the game are going to be like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Whereas with Mario, that's, that's much more a game just in its basic mechanics and design. It's, it's for those type of people who maybe don't play games that much and you can just hit a and jump and sort of immediately get what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and I think I think you're right exactly with that. Is that's and when you draw the line from Ocarina of Time to Breath of the Wild, that's. I mean, you look back and you know the whole idea of targeting and lock on and the highlighted text. You know, those are the things that kind of are glaring when you look back. Um, and I we're about a biased audience, you know, reviewing this too, right? We are not the every person like we're gamers, um, and so. I mean, that, that, that's, but that's that's who these games are for. They're for gamers, and so knowing that, I think it is the right choice to abandon those things and just move in the direction. And you know, Breath of the Wild is an, a perfect example of, yeah, when you do that, look at what you get, right? Even even towards the pro mode or the no whatever it's called, no HUD mode. It's like it just it gets better and better. And so, yes, keep going in that direction. Like don't mm-hmm. don't go back to the the hand holding. Yeah, dude. Sort of on that subject. Let's rank. Uh, let's rank these three games, okay? Right. Ocarina of Time, Link to the Past, and Breath of the Wild. Okay. Uh, you just want to go? How do you want to rank? Just on like gut or like? Uh... Well, let me let me say that um, if this were 1999 and we were recording this in 1999, yeah. Ocarina of Time would be at the top for me. Uh, you know, at the time, I hadn't even played Link to the Past because I didn't have a Super NES. Okay. Uh, growing up, I had a Genesis, um, so I played it later. But I, at, if I had played it, and we were ranking this in 1999, I think I would still put Ocarina at the top. But now I would put Ocarina at the bottom, and I would put Breath of the Wild at the top, and I guess that would be Link to the Past in the middle. The reason for that is, um, I think where a lot of the impact from Breath of the Wild uh, is is derived now is from the sense of scale, which is only possible because of it's sort of using... I don't know if anything on the Switch is like cutting-edge technology, so whatever you'd want to call it, but or maybe it's just, you know, Nintendo... Maybe it's the modern development environment where Nintendo felt like they could farm out some of the development of the map, which I know they did too. I think it was Monolith Soft and have both of those companies still make money on it. But whatever it is, they're using some aspect of the modern development environment to um, basically deliver a lot of the impact of the game. I think the impact of the game, what really affects you is when you're like jumping off of a super high tower with the paraglider, those types of things that certainly wouldn't have been possible with Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time, if you go back the reason why I would have ranked it first at that time is because of, again, the technical wizardry that is on display there. And 
I, I think about like the Queen Goma boss fight is there's no better, I think, example of using 3D and using new tech to deliver impact than that fight because you it's like you hear something above you and you're forced to use the first person camera to look up and mm-hmm. see the creepy glowing eye on the on the ceiling and then it drops down on you and the fight starts. That's an amazing moment for the totally. time. To play it now, it, obviously it feels pedestrian, right? Because so many other games have used 3D to much greater effect than that. Um, but I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, for Zelda at least, when a Zelda game is very good, I think it's deriving a, a lot of its impact from modern technology. But that necessarily means that when a, a new game comes out with, a new Zelda game comes out with better technology, then it's necessarily displaced um by by that new game and so i'd say you know in 10 years or whatever when nintendo decides to completely reinvent the zelda paradigm and start from a blank slate and totally reimagine it with new tech that game will become the best zelda game for me and breath of the wild will get pushed down yeah i can i can see that future where breath of the wild becomes the ocarina of time of today where you can respect it for all it did and the way it advanced the world and it you know uh yeah i i kind of paused because i wondered and i won't go into it now but i wondered does breath of the wild create the seeds of lore like ocarina of time did and we won't know that until you know 10 years go by and i'm sure we could go and evaluate it now just to see if the, the seeds are there but um I would agree that, yeah, that, like, and that's kind of what you want from a game series anyway, is that the technologically advanced version of it a decade later brings everything from the past into a future light that, you know, makes it even better and retells stories or tells them in new ways. Um, as, yeah. But even as I say that, you know, I do see Breath of the Wild as the, the, the game that kicks Ocarina of Time off of the pedestal, right, and replaces it. Um, and I would, so I would agree in the ranking, first of all, Breath of the Wild is at the top with Ocarina of Time and then, or, uh, with, a uh, Link to the Past in the middle and Ocarina of Time at the bottom. Um, but I find that rank, ranking interesting because when the next one, whatever that is, comes, where will Link to the Past go? Will Link to the Past stay where it is because of, like, is it protected because of the... Uh, you know, 2D nature and the stylization and all these things that it has kind of in its favor? Um, or will it be pushed down a rank? You know, that's kind of the thing that I, that I, I wonder about. Um, I think it has, I mean, I think it could have some helium and, and later be elevated to being the best. I don't know, like, because eventually Breath of the Wild is going to feel pedestrian, I think, because other games are going to do 3D exploration so much better i mean it's not like it was even the first to do that it i think i think uh i mean as and that's obvious but i think what it did so well is it has an enormous world which many other games have uh but when i sample some of those other open world games they just feel like the developers made a whole bunch of stuff and dropped it into a big world and didn't really think about how those things interact whereas um, in Breath of the Wild, everything feels super purposeful, meaningful. Um, so it's sort of like a curated, like open world type of exploration, which, which is yeah. different than than some other games, which I 
won't say mean things about uh, by naming them. But um, but I think in the case of Link to the Past, it's like it's it's a mechanics game. It's like it's sort of almost like a hardcore action game. And there's definitely been a renaissance with those types of mm-hmm. of games as of in the last ten years or so. Um, and I mean, and it's a classic Tezuka game, like kind of like I was talking about before. Um, so I, I think those mechanics never, they never go away and they're never eclipsed. If a game is mechanically very good and right. feels tight and feels, you know, like there's some friction and, and how you're moving around the world and encountering the enemies that doesn't change. And I think that's why super Mario brothers three super Mario world are still justifiably so, uh, beloved. And, and so I guess to sum up, it's like, if you're making so much of your game's impact derive from technology or the, the newness of it, then it must be eclipsed by yeah. new technology that comes uh, later down the line. And there's nothing wrong with that because you're still delivering something that's so impactful because it feels so new and fresh. You just have to accept that it will be eclipsed. Whereas with something like a Super Mario World or Mario 3, it's never really going to be eclipsed until someone does mechanics um, and and just sort of like the feeling of of moving in the world, um, you know the the feeling of how Mario moves in midair and skids on platforms and mm-hmm. uh, the and the unbelievable level design in those games. That's probably never going to be eclipsed because those games are um, coming up on thirty years old. So. I, I think that's the choice you have to make as a developer is like, is my fun going to be derived from the tech perfectly valid choice? Or is it going to be derived from the mechanics uh, also perfectly valid choice? And I'm not a developer and I, and I never will be. So I sort of don't know what I'm talking about, but that's what struck <laughs> me. <laughs> no, but uh, I think that's, that's, that's actually really insightful. What you're, what you're saying there is, and I think about why these games haven't been dethroned. I think that's exactly it is, they excel at what they're delivering, which, I mean, I guess that's like a duh statement. Um, but other games that come along, it's like they, they can't do it better, right? And maybe they derive a component. You know, you get things like Super Meat Boy or whatever, where it's like, yeah, we take the platform elements and we punish you. Um, but in terms of delivering, you know, level design and, you know, these the physics-based, like you're talking about, the different movement and the tightness of control, Mario's there for a reason, and it's it's it will continue to be there versus, uh, you know, Ocarina of Time. Yeah, they're, they are, they're fitting a lot of the game into the shape of technology of the time. And so you can look at it and you say, this is, is like a greatest game of its time. Like that's something that I'm comfortable saying. Like, yes, it was the greatest game of its time. So, you know, you go back to 99 and absolutely. Um, is it, the greatest game of all time or the greatest Zelda of all time. No, it's neither. Um, and I guess I would now looking back at, you know, these points uh, on this timeline, I would hope then that breath of the wild is not the greatest game of all time. Like I, it is definitely for me, uh, the greatest Zelda of, of all time presently, but that is not a label that I would affix to it permanently knowing what I know now. And, and I would hope to not affix, you know, I, I hope the one that's comes is better. Uh, we all do. Like you always want the next one to be better, but, um, 
I guess just giving it that temporal nature instead of a permanent fixture is a more comfortable way to label it. Yeah, because and it, because it's what we've come to expect, right? It's like mm-hmm. some someday a new Zelda game will come out and it'll be unbelievable in a way that uh, Breath of the Wild never could have been. But I don't see. Uh, I don't know. Do you like Super Mario Three more? Or do you like Super Mario World more? Uh, I I think this often boils down to when you started playing them or which uh-huh. one you started with. And for me, it was World. So that's the one for me. That's the that's the top. Um, but I understand that that's a contentious statement to make. Yeah, uh, it's so it's so hard to choose. But um, I mean, both of those games, I think, will never be be dethroned because they're just mechanically so fun and it and visually they are so confident and uh we're sort of using the technology i mean it's like they're i guess they're using the tech in a way that wasn't designed to blow you away i mean i didn't play them at the time so i i shouldn't really say but i i again because i didn't have an nes or a super Mm -hmm. nes i played them like later on um but it uh they're not relying on the tech in my view they're relying on on the mechanics and and that's why they're still so good and that's why no other mario games i feel like mario 64 which i am also only playing as an adult is is very very good because it i think it gets the mechanics so right but that's another that's another conversation i think we've um i think we've pretty much agreed that ocarina of time is a remarkable technical achievement and it's fun to play today at least for me because i know exactly what to do and i'm just sort of blowing through the game Mm -hmm. and uh if you're watching me play it like my son does i think for him it just looks like in a movie or something um and and it's and it's a critical i would argue maybe the most critical um building block of the zelda universe and and kind of like lore and uh yeah um totally yeah and they i mean it it basically served as a template for i don't know how many 3d zelda games came out between ocarina and breath of the wild but three or four yeah three yeah yeah you had yeah um twilight princess and majora's mask i don't know if you consider that its own uh wind waker um skyward sword skyward sword right so four yeah and and tons dude you can be sure that tons of people played those each one of those games when they were 14 years old and yep. it's the best game they ever played and it blew their mind so it did establish a template for many successful games at least from the perspective of selling units um mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and also just anchoring you know, to the next generation like that. And that's what a, a brand, but also a myth is all about, right? Is that you tell it and retell it in ways that attach to the next person and just kind of build that, uh, I don't want to say user base. For mechanically, it's the user base, but then also just uh, the myth in the world, right? Build its permanence to uh, over time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, incredibly successful. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that does it. I think we uh, sort of hit on all the points we wanted to talk about. Um, 
not a greatest review. game. Yeah, yeah. this is. <laughs> if you're listening, this is the best ever review you're going to hear of Ocarina of Time. We've pronounced definitively, it's not a greatest game of all time. So go ahead and uh, if you have access, update that Wikipedia page and uh, delete that phrase about it being one of the best games of all time. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna remove it right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, all right. So this was our first episode. Um, if you liked it, please feel free to. What am I supposed to say at the end? Like, please rate it and leave us a review if you enjoyed it. Um, and maybe we can be back with another one. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks.